0: Father, we, we know through the, the writing of the psalmist that the entrance of your word gives light. In the dark age that we find ourselves living in, how much brighter the light appears. So Lord, would you equip us to lead lives of godliness, lives that mirror our great God, give us much opportunity to speak openly about Christ And the forgiveness of sins and the hope that's only to be found in Christ and Christ alone. As we read your words, as we study your words, would you give more light in our living? We commit our time to you in Christ's precious name, amen. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. It's been a few weeks since we've been in the book of Ephesians. I don't remember when I was last up here, but uh, it's been a few weeks anyways. We'll find ourselves in chapter 3 this morning, and if I could just kind of pave the way and try to get get our bearings back to what we've already looked at. You know, as I, as I think about the rich theology before us, some thoughts came to mind of theology and seminary, and when I would go through a difficult theology exam, I figured I would put a script, at least make it look theological by putting a scripture reference next to an answer I didn't know. I would jot down Deuteronomy 29, 29 the secret things belong to the Lord, and... My gracious theology professor wrote back the first time I tried that on my exam, and he finished the verse by saying, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. And so as I was schooled in knowing what I ought to know, uh, there's a lot of theology, rich theology in the book of Ephesians, we ought to know, that we are culpable, we're accountable for knowing, and we want to look into this unique revelation, to put it in theological terms, the mystery of the church that the Apostle Paul writes to us about here in Ephesians 3. And so to get our bearings from where we've been, uh, especially in chapter 2, do you remember the the robust soteriology he began chapter 2 in by talking about our pre-Christian experience, our life without Christ, our state of deadness, your dead and your transgressions and sins. And as he develops this, this doctrine of salvation, our deadness, our sinfulness, our bondage, our separation from the covenants of promise, our separation from God, it doesn't get any bleaker and and then then he he uh tunes up that theology of salvation, he says that was before Christ, but in Christ you, were, you who were dead, he made alive, he's raised you and he's brought you near and so he t- starts transitioning in his theology from the doctrine of, of salvation to the doctrine of the church because as he brought us near to himself through forgiveness of sins, he also brought us near to fellow believers that had brought, been brought near to him and this is, this is the grand scheme of the church. And so he kind of melds those theologies together of of the doctrine of salvation and the doctrine of the church. Those who are far off have been brought near by the blood. He develops that in chapter 2. And in this rich ecclesiology that begins talking about nearness, not just to himself but to each other. You'll notice, uh, if you remember in our study in in Ephesians 2, this is like uh, the only chapter of the book where he doesn't mention the church, even though it's all about the church. Uh, He he kind of meanders around. He he, uh, uses different figures of speech for the church. Uh, You remember when you were a child and you were given uh, drawing books in which you need to uh, find objects that are carefully concealed in there? Uh, I think nowadays it's I spy. I spy something in the picture or something, and uh, but underneath uh, this, this uh, you know the trees and the grass and the fluffy clouds and everything. You see that that scene in that drawing that uh, took a little effort to get there. Can you find the animals hidden? When you looked at the picture carefully, you find that squirrel hidden in the wavy lines of the clouds or an elephant tucked in the foliage of the tree or the fish in the, in, the, in the grass and so on. In a sense, I think that's somewhat what Paul does there in Ephesians 2. He manders all around talking about how great our salvation is in Christ and nearness to God and nearness with his people without calling his people the church, which is really what he's going to refer them, to them in chapter, chapter 3. So he says it without saying it, without ever using the word church, but tucked in all those verses and all those lines, he's been developing our theology of the church. So we need to, to get a glimpse of this. He'd already told us towards the end of chapter 2 about this unique bringing together of Jews and Gentiles making up this one body in Christ, making two groups into one. He said that in, in verse 14 of chapter 2. The two into one man, verse 15. That we're not strangers and aliens, but we're fellow citizens with the saints. That's verse 19. In that same verse, he talks about you people are God's household. Doesn't call him the church there. You're his household. Built upon By the apostles, the prophets, with Christ as the cornerstone. That's the next verse, verse 20. And then in verses 21 and 22, growing into a holy temple. So the New Testament worshiper, the the saint of God in this age, doesn't go up to the temple like we read about in the Psalms and their Psalms of Ascent going up to the temple to worship their God. Though we worship in much the same way. We're saved in the same way by grace through faith. But there's some difference a lot of difference. And that difference is going to be talked about today in Ephesians chapter 3. It is new. I think there is too much emphasis when we when we study biblical theology, too much emphasis on uh, the continuity between the Testaments. Yes, they're all speaking the same story, but they are different. You've got the Old Testament and the New Testament with some discontinuity between them. Yeah, there's the continuity of salvation by grace through faith, but God is working in different ways, different. There's no church in the Old Testament. We don't find it. I I know a lot of uh, writers out there that that talk, uh, matter of fact, I printed one off this week to see who of my Reformed brothers are talking about uh, Israel and the church, and uh, uh, I'll let the guilty parties remain anonymous. But uh, oftentimes in the discussion when, we talk about the, when, when people talk about the church in the Old Testament, they take, they'll take the Hebrew word for community, kahal, which is translated by the Greek term ecclesia in the Septuagint as church. And so we've got our church in the Old Testament. No, we don't. You look at ecclesia, the Greek term for church, that was a secular term. It just speaks of congregation or assembly, and so we've got to be informed by the robust theology sitting at the feet of people like the Apostle Paul to understand that the gatherings we speak of that are taking place on this day in this building is the church. It is not a gathering of just uh, of, uh, of, uh, general worshipers. This is the church of Jesus Christ that gathers and so this is, this is some new theology that Paul shares with those that even, even those that may have been schooled in the Old Testament. Let me invite you to look at four aspects of Paul's ministry of mystery that give us insight and appreciation in the working of God in this age in which you and I live. Nothing will sow fortitude Our understanding and living in this day and age with all the difficulties, like Paul was in prison. You know, we face some other difficulties. Maybe we're not in prison, but some, some extreme opposition. And as our conviction of calling and being placed by God in the ministry... And that that ministry is in the only organization which is also an organism that God started and Christ promised to build and to grow. It's His church. Let's learn about it together this morning at the feet of the Apostle Paul. Join me in Ephesians 3 verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Again, I'm not going to have time in, the, in the, our exhibition to really uh, develop this, but we just read about their reading. They didn't have copies of the Word of God. That is one of the great significances of why we have the public reading of Scripture. Even when you you miss some days reading the Bible in your personal lives, we read it together when we get together. And Paul says, I'm writing to you Gentiles so that as as you read it, in the corporate assembly, as you read it, You can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Verse 5, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. To be specific, and here's how he defines this mystery, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of His power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory." As we begin our adventure in scripture this morning, notice first of all the introduction in verse 1. This is the first aspect of Paul's ministry of mystery. Now, what, you're gonna, what you ought to note right off the bat is that Paul no sooner gets his thoughts started in verse 1 but he starts chasing a rabbit. Uh, he often does this, doesn't he? You know, he starts talking about something and then fills in. That's what he's going to do. Verses 12 through 13 is all filling in. What, he, and then he'll continue with his prayer in, in uh, verses, verse 14 and the following verses of, of chapter 3. But you'll notice as he introduces what he's talking about here, for this reason or because of this, on account of, for this very reason. What reason? And he's referring back to the truths about the unity of believers that he just discussed. Remember, chapter divisions are man's invention, not God's. And so, uh, I hope that you get in the habit, at least once in a while, of reading through a whole book of the Bible in one sitting. Ephesians isn't very long, it's only six chapters. And so, reading each verse there in the sequence in which it was written... Sometimes we can just, okay, there's a sermon on this set of verses this week and this set, and so we can get kind of discombobulated if we're not reading consecutively through. And so Paul here in this first phrase goes back to what he already said in in chapter 2. And it appears that the purpose of this little digression that he's going to go on in these next set of verses is to describe himself as a prisoner. A prisoner. You read... Some about his uh, jailbird ministry in several passages, but just let, let's just take one as an example. Go back with me to Acts 21 that recounts one of these times. In Acts 21, in verses 27 to 36, we've got the apostle being seized in the temple. And when he gets out of jail, he goes right back to uh, preaching in such areas. But Acts Twenty 27 we're told when the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him, speaking of Paul, in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law in this place. And besides, he's even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. You see what's going on? You know, he's against the law, he's against us Jews, against our place of worship, he's against it all. He's a troublemaker. Verse 29. For They had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was provoked, and the people rushed together and taken hold of Paul. They dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. While they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. At once... He took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he began asking who he was and what he had done. But among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another, and when he could not find out the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he got to the stairs, he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob, for the multitude of the people kept following them, shouting away with him. Such is life and ministry for the Apostle Paul. Beaten, difficulty, turmoil, Oftentimes in the slammer, this is what it was like for the apostle or the prisoner of Christ to the Gentiles as he designates himself. Imagine the tension, the emotion, the heaviness of soul, and the mind games, if that were you. We, we, we can just spend a number of seconds reading over an account and not realize the ongoing struggle and the enormity of what was going on here. And no matter how big a deal it was, his conclusion every time is that I've been tasked, I've been graced with the privilege to preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. You know, we might find ourselves more like Paul than we realize, and our, uh, the onslaught against us might get a little closer to his ministry where in the future, on the horizon, maybe some of us will be in jail because of what we believe. The question is, are we going to have the same biblical outlook of a jail ministry or are we going to be assaulting those that put us there? Paul helps us with his perspective here. Though he'd been prisoner for about two years in Caesarea and two in Rome, he didn't consider himself to be a prisoner of any government or any person. Instead, he knew he was under the sovereign watch care of Christ and every detail of life was in his mighty and benevolent hands. There are others who have understood this perspective. One that I would bring to your attention would be Corrie Ten Boom. She wrote that she considered whether she, wherever she was, that was just the part of the world God wanted her to take the gospel to. Even the German concentration camp, that was Paul's perspective too in prison. That's my mission field, by the sovereign design of God. He suffered imprisonment for preaching to the Gentiles. He writes it in other places. If you wanted to jot down another, 2 Corinthians 4, 8-15, which I, I was going to have us read, but uh, due to time, we'll, we'll uh, skip over that. He'll, he'll write to, to Timothy, his son in the faith, and, and tell him in 2 Timothy 1 8, Don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner. Share in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. Join me. And yet he's not making light of the pain and turmoil of going through opposition. It's not easy being slandered for righteousness when you're seeking to be a faithful slave of the Lord Jesus. That's why I, when we read accounts like that in Acts that we did, don't just rush right over it. Try to imbibe out of the text the emotion and the heaviness of soul that goes to those experiences, which may be ours in the future. The ridicule and the blemishes that come. The ministry's dirty business if you're going to be faithful to God. Yet Paul's going to use that as a platform in his first practical exhortation in this very epistle to the Ephesians when he gets into some of the application of this rich doctrine. When he he starts off in chapter 4, he says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. You know, if Paul hadn't borne up underneath the difficulty and honored his Christ in the jail cell... Who would he be to be exhorting any believer to raise above the turmoils and the dirtiness of a sinful world? He'd be disqualified. Might we learn, beloved, to please God? doesn't matter what men say. But to displease Him, it doesn't matter what kind of man's applause follows us. So as he introduces, he writes as a prisoner in a jail cell for preaching the good news that Gentiles might come to saving faith and join Jewish brethren in this new entity, the church. So let's look at that. Number two, the mystery, verses 2 through 6. The mystery. And please, track clearly in in your thinking about this point, the mystery. It's a central theological concept to grasp in this text. He's not going to define it until uh, closer to verse 6 or so. But it occurs in this passage three times. In verse 3, verse 4, and verse 9, he talks about this mystery. Is it mysterious to you what a mystery is? By definition, a mystery was something that had previously not been understood until the appointed time. In the New Testament, it's a technical term that connotes a secret of the Old Testament that had now become known in the progress of God's revelation. In the progress of God's revelation. It's not something that's a puzzle, but something previously unknown known only by God Himself until the appointed time when He chose to reveal it. And passages like here in Ephesians 3 demonst- that demonstrates the Gentiles being fellow heirs with Jews in one body of the church was a mystery unknown in the Old Testament, but revealed in the New. Though there's much in Old Testament that, we, that is uh, brought to full fruit in the New Testament, uh, we see a lot of seeds of... Uh, Of New Testament thought in the in the Old when we read about the kingdom parables that Jesus taught on. What do they'd understood about the kingdom? Well, they've understood what they've always understood about the kingdom that's there in the Old Testament. There's a lot about it. A lot of teaching in the Old Testament and seed that becomes fruit in the progress of revelation. So it's it's something that's fleshed out in the New Testament. It's not something that's mysterious but a sacred secret hidden in the ages past, but now revealed. It's not a puzzle, just something unknown and unrevealed. And the apostle tells us that this is his stewardship. If you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, verse 2. Possibly your translation, uh, if you've got the King James and New King James with you, instead of stewardship, it translates it dispensation, which I kind of like being a dispensationalist, but uh, I like the term. But he's speaking about a stewardship, a, an administration or a management. Paul was called to administrate the mystery, called by God through divine revelation to reveal this entity of the church. He didn't seek it out. He didn't invent it, but was commissioned by God to be an apostle to the Gentiles. If you wanted to jot down for uh, afternoon coffee and theology time, uh, as you trace this out, if you wanted to jot down Acts 9 and 1 Timothy 1 12 and 13 and Romans 15 and 1 Corinthians 4 and 1 Corinthians 9 and Galatians 2 for your studies this afternoon for this stewardship so what elicits Paul's little or expanded digression here in verses 2 to 13 is the unique call of God his special concern for the spiritual health and well-being of the Gentiles the Gentile readers because they're concerned about his condition when we read through the text you saw in verse 13 he says don't lose heart about my tribulations don't Don't upset the apple cart. It's okay. I'm here by divine design. So he's just seeking to be a faithful steward. The same word is used back in the first chapter, speaking of God's stewardship, God's administration. Back in chapter 1 and verse 10, we were told, in regards to the plan of God, Paul spoke about uh, in uh, 110, view, a view to an administration there's that term suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things in the Earth. So when you remember when Paul was unfolding the Trinitarian plan of redemption, back in eternity past, the Father elected a people. And he sent the Son, coming in the fullness of time, to die for sinners such as us. And he also sent his Spirit to be a seal and a guarantee. All this taking place in history, in administration. Well, at the center of God's plan is his intent to create a special household of people who form a home that he indwells. You know, as, as he used various terms back in, uh, in chapter 2 about, uh, uh, you know, verses 20 to 22, building on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ being the cornerstone, and this whole building being fitted together, growing into a holy temple, in whom you're also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. I should have picked up in verse 19, which is where he's really got that that home feeling that you are God's household. God's household. Believers are members of the household of God, built upon a solid foundation, and they are now a building, and God is building us together. They now form the home for God. So as a faithful steward... Paul wants to impart to these Gentile believers a fuller understanding of the outworking of God's plan through Messiah. He calls it in verse 4 the mystery of Christ. He wants to give insight into the mystery of Christ. Notice in verse 5, he tells us that in other generations it was not made known, other ages. Though God, way back in Genesis, chapter 12, had promised universal blessing through Abraham. This would even, wouldn't even would just be experienced by the Jew. We, we see Gentile, you know, the, the, the thought of Gentiles being, being brought in as well. The, the full meaning of that promise would not become crystal clear until you get to one of Paul's stewardship passages, for instance, Galatians 3.28, where he says, There is neither now Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. No, uh, though, though there might be different ethnicities in the church, our, our, the church ought to look like it's community, Amen. God's saving from every tongue, tribe, and nation. But the playing field, the foot of the cross, is all equal. We come into the kingdom the same way. Yes, Isaiah predicted salvation to all races, Isaiah 49.6. But it was Paul who wrote of the fulfillment of that pledge. No generation among God's people could have anticipated the full extent of what God would accomplish through his Messiah. Let's just imagine uh, how how the eyeballs would be popping on, on Jews as all these Gentiles start flooding in. Paul disclosed a truth by divine revelation that not even the greatest prophet understood. That within the church, composed of all saved since Pentecost, are in one body, and there would be no racial, no social no spiritual distinctions. Here's why I'd get uh, my uh, hermeneutical hat and a ruffle when I'd be uh, write, uh, grading essays from students who are uh, trying to defend, um, you know, whatever man can do, a woman can do better, and they use Galatians 3.28 as one of their proof texts. It's like it's not even speaking about distinction between... Male. It's talking about our, how, how we get into... Favour with God through salvation. It's all the same way. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, male or female. Coming to Christ is coming to Christ. Without distinction. So Paul said in other generations, other ages, it hadn't been made known. If you wanted to observe another phrase here, uh, he said says later on in verse five that it has now been revealed. It has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. God himself, not human teachers, made it known by direct revelation in the opening days of the New Testament. So here, the apostle divides history into two times, two ages. There's the time before Christ and the time after his incarnation, death, and resurrection. What was one of the qualifications to be a, an apostle? Jesus Christ was to, was to uh, see the risen Savior. And so since Paul wasn't there on that day, you know, he was given that vision uh, that Jesus did appear to him so that he was qualified as one untimely born, as he writes to the Corinthians. So he divides all of history into before Christ and after Christ. And notice that little conjunction as. As it has now been revealed. So you see he's talking about before and after this clear distinction. It's crucial. Is is this little word as talking about total just disjunction from the past and the present? Or is it something that morphs closer together? There was a little bit known in the Old Testament but not a whole lot. So is there an is this as saying that what I'm telling you about today is totally, diff- uh, is, is totally nuanced and a unique new mystery, or did they know something? Kind of a half-light of revelation in the Old Testament. For time's sake, uh, th- that's about all the abbreviating I can do on the debate because it hinges right here. Uh, did, they, did they know in the Old Testament about the church? No, they did not. Were they given the promise? Did Abraham really get a promise? Yes, he did. He just didn't know how big that promise was. I think that to accept church in the Old Testament would go against Paul's argument, this once-but-now language. He's given absolute distinction between two ages before Christ and what's happened since Christ. So you might be pondering and wondering to yourself, as you as you sit there, in what ways was it unknown? This mystery of the church, Jew and Gentile together? How about the means? The means by which he would accomplish his purpose is new and unexpected. Messiah pouring out blood was unanticipated. If you if you look back at the previous chapter, back in chapter two and verse thirteen, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near, how? By the blood of Christ. Verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, so that he himself might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. So the means by which he accomplishes purpose, is it... How about, no good Jew, no faithful Jew would have thought that God would have abrogated the Mosaic Law, would he? None would have anticipated God laying aside the conditions of approaching him. And you know, if we're going to throw out the means by which he'd accomplish, how about the manner? How do, How about the manner in him realizing his purpose? By incorporating Jew and Gentiles into one body with equal access and on equal footing? You mean the Gentiles don't have to go through the Jews to get to God? Uh Uh-uh. Wish the Judaizers realized that. How about another facet? How about the nearness of God? We know that the Old Testament saint had a knowledge of God's nearness... The nearness of God, which is our good, that the psalmist writes about. But his nearness, by degree, exceeds in Paul's letters in this present dispensation. You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. There's so much more to say, but uh, uh, if you wanted to jot down for your theological argument uh, later on, Colossians one twenty-six which is a parallel here to uh, what he's talking about to the, those at Ephesus, he doesn't use that little preposition as, but clearly says the mystery was kept hidden for ages, but is now made manifest to the saints. Very clear, unambiguous. You know, the last point that Paul wants to really impart to his dear, dear Gentile believers At the center of the mystery revealed, go with me to verse 6. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So that little preposition, soon, as. uh, Notice what he does here. Uh, If you are reading the New American Standard like I read for us from, notice he talks about them being... Fellow heirs, fellow members, and fellow partakers. Three times. Fellow heirs, fellow members of that same body, and fellow partakers. They're, they're, they're co-sharers. Matter of fact, that, uh, uh, for, the, for the co-sharers or fellow partakers, this word is used in the, the papyri for those who are joint possessors of a house. It could be a pain in the neck if you own something with somebody, you know. Uh, Sin and I equally own a house that when, when, uh, when finally the right buyer comes across, uh, we're both going to have to go through that mountain of paperwork signing both names. And, but that's the, the, that's the picture. Fellow partakers, fellow sharers. The mystery is not that Gentiles would be saved. They knew that. The Old Testament gave evidence of that. But the believing Jews and Gentiles would be joined together in the body of Christ, the church? They'd say, you've got to be ludicrous. Now Gentiles share equally with Jews in the blessings of new covenant life with God. Three times he reiterates it in that verse. Fellow heirs, fellow members, fellow partakers. To emphasize the obliteration of any distinction. So as you try to tie some of this together, Martin Lloyd-Jones says in his discussion of uh, uh, here in Ephesians, he says, we're, we're all equally sinners. We're all equally helpless. We have all come to one and the same Savior. We have the same salvation. We have the same Holy Spirit. We have the same Father. We even have the same trials. And finally, we are all marching and going together to the same eternal home. It's a knowledge of appreciation of these things that draw us together. So as we, as we are readying ourselves to celebrate the Lord's table, together is a, an operative word. We come to the table together as the bride of Christ. Those that know Christ, those that don't know Christ ought to let the elements pass. Otherwise, you bring judgment upon your life. So what is he speaking of in this, in this mystery, this, this union, this, this togetherness, this new entity of the church One of the biggest things, foremost things it speaks of is the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's not that the Old Testament saints did not have the Spirit. They did have the Spirit. But this is the Holy Spirit of promise that he spoke about in chapter 1, verse 13. And the coming of the Holy Spirit is one of the principal blessings of the new covenant. Again, if you're taking notes and want to jot down this being one of the principal manifestations of the new covenant. Ezekiel 36 26 and 27, Ezekiel 37, 14, and Joel 2, 28 to 30, just to get the discussion started. Uh, A dear friend, actually this would be the same theological friend that wrote back to my paper on my theology exam filling in Deuteronomy 29, 29. In uh, an article he had wrote, wrote, that's real good English, Uh, he had written back uh, some years ago uh, writes about the this this new coming ministry of the spirit. He says the baptism of the holy spirit couldn't begin until after the resurrection and ascension of Christ. So as as I give you this quote, think about the timeline that Paul gives us here in Ephesians 3. There's the before and the after, clear distinction before Christ and after Christ. So he says, the baptism of the Spirit couldn't begin until after the resurrection and ascension of Christ. And Old Testament saints didn't experience the baptizing work of the Spirit, even those alive during the earthly ministry of Christ. Baptism of the Spirit into the body is unique to the church age. The truth of the Jew and Gentile placed together into one body was a mystery that Paul developed for the first time. So says Dr. Larry Pettigrew. You know, the promise that they share in goes further than the Spirit. It's not the only evidence to encompass the spillover blessings of all that God promised in the Old Testament. Now, when we say that that we're experiencing some of the blessings of the new covenant through Christ together, we know that that's not everything. I'm so glad that some of the commentators on Ephesians remind their readers. This doesn't include participation in the land promises. They weren't given to us. They were given to others. They were made to Israel. Because the church is not the new Israel, but a distinct body of believers comprised of Jew and Gentile. That is a mystery that Paul reveals by divine inspiration of the Spirit of God. So what about the mystery? Point three, the mystery, verses, verses 7 to 12. So God's revealed a new and definitive stage in his eternal plan that involves creating a people for himself consisting of Jew and Gentile united to Christ and joined to one another. It's astounding to think about that this once this vertical relationship is straightened out, the holy God that I could not approach has been settled and I have access through Christ is to settle the horizontal. That's why there's no distinction with others. Who, Who cares about the Red and yellow, black and white, as we learned to sing in Sunday school as kids. They come to faith in Christ. There is no distinction. There are brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul was compelled to affirm his authority for teaching the oneness of Jew and Gentile in Christ. A new and far-reaching truth that probably most in Ephesus found hard to swallow, both in its comprehension and in its acceptance. Yet this amazing gift of grace was given to Paul and given for two major reasons if you want to uh, bring your eyes down to verse verse 8 and and verse 9 you notice this is kind of twofold for him in verse 8 towards the end he says it's to proclaim to preach to the Gentiles the unfallible riches of Christ so it's a ministry of proclamation and in verse number 9 it's a ministry of illumination to bring to light things which have been hidden by God in the past intentionally hidden so it's a twofold ministry so the spirit uh, this stewardship was graciously granted by God to Paul this ministry of proclamation and illumination as a pro, uh, as the apostle to the gentiles he didn't request it He didn't manipulate to get to deliver the message. Oh, me, 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 pick me. Uh, He had no qualifications for the ministry, for this mission that God had called him to. In fact, in the pile of applications, you know, as I talk with search committees and everything, I find out how many people have applied, uh, you know, at the bottom of the stack. That would be Paul. You remember his resume that uh, he recounts for us? Uh, He actually recounted uh, to the Philippians His resume in Philippians 3, verses 4 to 7. I get confidence, all right. If anyone could ever have confidence, Paul should have it. He said, I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew, Hebrews, to the law, Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, I was found blameless. Go to the bottom of the stack, Paul. Bottom of the stack. His skill set was for a different work. Yet God, in his amazing grace, chose him. God didn't consult his resume. None can make himself a minister. Since the calling, the message, the work, the empowering for ministry is all a prerogative of a sovereign and gracious God. It's for him and him alone to grant. Paul recognized that. He didn't go searching for, how can I have some new truth for God's people? No, God did that. Kind of the principle that we've held to when we talk with people, you know, that uh, we'd like to see more elders here at Newtown Bible Church, wouldn't we? You know, uh, but we don't make elders. God makes elders. That's why we say that. All we can do is help develop their gifting, but it's granting is by a sovereign Lord. We're simple slaves. Or as Paul says here, the least of all the saints. The very least of all the saints. I love the term that's used here, alexistos, less than the least, since there is no such thing. That's his point. The, the smallest stir is how Bartha refers to it as. It designates the deepest self-abasement. This is not false humility here, but in abject humility, he realizes the pecking order, the lowest of the low. Here I was, persecuted in the church, and God used him to pen most of the New Testament letters. What an astounding privilege. Does that characterize your view towards ministry, beloved, as a never-ending privilege to serve Jesus and His people? We'll never get over that. It's just our response to gospel grace. And yet this grace was given in demonstration of the power of God, according to verse 7. I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the work of his power. Weakling Paul here, majestic God empowering though. Paul knew his unworthiness. And yet God used him mightily. What an inspirational model that the grace of God that they experienced in their call to be his children engaged in a life of service will be sufficient for them that he wrote to as it was for him in the prison. Paul was a faithful steward of his gifting. And that's what he modeled to the people he wrote to. Does that, does that characterize you? And each of us, similar to Paul, are responsible to minister. It doesn't matter if you're setting up coffee or folding bulletins. If it's something that's needed for our fellowship and worship, this is ministry. If you're not able to get into the prayer meeting and yet you're having your prayer time and you're doing your, checking your email and sending out your text to find out what to pray for at home because you can't get out there, that's ministry. The secret is get involved. Don't let it pass you by, beloved. To bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. This message, though it was part of the plan from the very get-go, from the very beginning, was hidden until the appointed time that God ordained now with Paul. It wasn't just a recent addition, recent revelation. Paul simply designates himself as an apostle of the Gentiles who came on the scene at God's right time to reveal by divine revelation. You know, we could observe in uh, verses 10 to 12 the whole purpose of this ministry. Do you ever think that somebody's watching you? You, you ever had that? You, you, you go into the dark room, you don't flip the switch, and you think somebody's staring you in the face, and then when the kid says, boom! <laughs> well, you know, what Paul is revealing here, we are, people are watching all the time, and it's not those that we would anticipate it's the angelic realm who are observing that the church manifests God's glory to angels. The medium by which the manifold wisdom of God is communicated is the church. In the sovereign wisdom of God, the time was right, the medium of the church was, was where, where he had it, and the recipients of the angelic hosts. There's some debate as to, okay, is it uh, the holy angels or uh, does it include the fallen angels? Well, even if it includes the fallen angels before the watching world, they see the glory of God and salvation, the preservation of the church. Amazing. All of this working, according to verse 11, according to the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. He works out to the purpose of the church, which is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The church is what lets the world see the plan accomplished in action. The mystery, the church is at the centerpiece of God's working in the world today. Especially as, as they see people who are so different from each other, such different backgrounds, such a host of baggage, all the variegated parts working harmoniously in union to the same goal, united in one bond with one gospel message, the church is the audio-visual of God's wisdom. Amazing. Notice the implications coming to bear with his uh, God-centered view. It's all part of the eternal plan of God's glory. Even the imprisonment that Paul experienced was by divine design. And our confidence comes next, this this boldness, this confident access through Him. Verse 12, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in Him. We'll celebrate that. We celebrate that all the time when we pray, but as we have corporate prayer tonight, as Paul engages in prayer for verses 14 through 21, access. And so his exhortational point, point four, the injunction, verse 13, notice it, therefore, on the grounds of all that he'd just written to them I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf for they are your glory. Now we notice the point of Paul's little digression his little parentheses. He continues the statement begun in verse 1 that you not lose heart. Don't be shaken. It's by grand design Not only is it by grand design about Paul in prison, but the church and what he's erected. The church is established by weak people. The least of the saints, as Paul calls himself. Those who suffer and find themselves facing seemingly insurmountable odds and constraints. It's amazing how, as with Paul, so with us, that he uses utterly unqualified agents Church members are the least qualified to do what God's called them to do, at least in the eyes of the world, to accomplish His purposes. So he'd already taught on nearness to God and peace with God, Jew, Gentile, together reconciled to God, the truth that we've got access to the Father through the Spirit. Paul understood in the grand scheme of things, his suffering was for their gain and their glory all part of God's amazing and intricate plan beloved as he could think so deep and so loftily about his tribulations maybe we need to probe a little deeper and look higher on our tribulations considering what kind of lesson we're giving the angels what kind of lesson we're giving a watching world realizing that the momentary light afflictions appear so big at the time don't they The day seems like it goes on forever. Yet it's how a sovereign and benevolent God manifests himself through his church. How grand is your God to the angels based on your actions, your reactions to the events of life that imprison you? The grace was given to Paul not just to be received, but to share with others. During Jesus' ministry, the focus was on Israel as the children of the promise. After his death and resurrection, both Israel and nations are included as recipients of the saving message. We see a remarkable salvation historical shift in the ministry of the Apostle Paul that he writes about. Might we understand it and be able to unpack its richness in our lives? So as you go from beginning of plan to consummation of plan, James Montgomery Boyce Tried to capture it this way, he said, When Satan rebelled against God and carried the host of fallen angels, now demons, with him into eternal ruin, God could have crushed the rebellion and annihilated Satan and his host forever. That would have been just just and reasonable. It might even have been merciful, for if God had gone on, gone on to create Adam and Eve, as he had no doubt determined to do beforehand, Satan would not have been there to tempt them. The pair would not have fallen, the sin and death would not have passed upon the entire human race. But this would not have shown God's manifold wisdom. It would have shown His power and perhaps even His mercy, but it would not have shown that God's way, the way of truth and righteousness, is the only really good way and the only sure path to happiness. So instead of annihilating Satan, God took an entirely different path. He said, I've already determined to create a race called man, and I know in advance, because I know all things, that Satan will seduce him from my righteousness and plunge him into misery. Satan will think he won, but while Satan is doing that, turning the human race against me and setting individual human beings against one another and even against themselves, I'll begin to create a new people who will glory in doing what is right, even when it's not popular, and who will delight in pleasing me even when they suffer for it. Satan will say, your people serve you only because you protect them, only because you provide for them materially. Didn't he do that with Job? But here and there, in a great variety of ways, I'll allow them to be greatly abused and persecuted. And I'll show by their reactions that not only will they continue to praise me in their suffering and thus bring glory to my name, but they'll even be happier in their sufferings than Satan's people will be in their maximum share of human prestige and possessions. So, God let his history unfold like a great drama upon the cosmic stage. The angels are the audience We're the actors. Satan's there to do everything he can to resist and thwart God's purposes. This drama unfolds across the centuries as Adam and Eve and Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Isaiah, John the Baptist, Jesus, Peter and Paul, and all the other drama persona of Christian history. Both the great persons and the minor persons are brought on stage to play the part God's assigned them and speak words that come from hearts that love him. Adam proved that God's ways are best and he repented of his sins and trusted in the coming of Jesus. So even, even Noah and all the others, all these endured as seeming by, seeing by faith him who was invisible and they looked beyond the distress of this life for their reward. Beloved, might we learn from this and honor our Christ in the coming days ahead in the glory of his church that accomplishes his purpose for his glory. Would you pray with me? Father, what injustice a human ambassador can do with your word. And so, Lord, we just entrust your spirit to elucidate these truths clearer and to show us the implications of these texts in our day-to-day lives together as we serve the Lord Jesus in the days ahead, should you tarry. We understand that you planned the church before you ever made the heavens and the earth. You abrogated the old covenant to inaugurate a new era in which the church would be this new temple of worship for redeemed sinners. We confess that you sent Jesus to give his life so that the problem of sin could be dealt with and Jew-Gentile could be reconciled to himself on an equal basis. You revealed your plan for the church to the apostles and prophets whom you commissioned to build this living structure and in which we live. And now this church stands as a witness against all the hostile schemes of fallen man who actively oppose you. Might you give us victory in the battle as you make us more like Christ this week than we were last week. And we'd be cautious to give you all the praise in your son's name. Amen.